Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking again to Gary Witta, the co-writer of Rogue One, as well as many, many other pieces of Star Wars canon, who is returning to the show for the third time. Uh, we have such a blast talking about trilogies, John Knoll stories, adventures on the set of Rogue One, as well as his incredible current projects. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 141, The Revenge of Gary Witta. Returning to the show, returning champion, Gary Witta, thanks for coming back on and just hanging out. Did you say this is my third time? I've this been on your, twice before. This is your third time. I, the first time is still one of my favorite Talking Bay 94 moments of all time because it was very early on in the show and I'd reached out okay. to you and you, obviously big name in Star Wars, and I was like, you know, maybe he'll say yes. And I got on a plane for work and I land and I have all these notifications just blowing up, blowing up because you had tweeted saying, just said yes to go on some show named Talking Bay 94 because I liked the name and you had tagged That's right. Me. I thought it was a cool name. Uh, and I was like, all right, we've made it. But I still, it's just my phone just like. That was when you were still a baby podcast. Still a baby. And now here I am. How many episodes uh, a, are you a toddler. We're almost to 150 now. Oh, shit. That's amazing. Uh, who is the biggest guest that you've had on in all that time? Besides you, you besides you. Yeah, I was going to say besides me. <laughs> uh, I mean, the biggest ones for me have always been Dennis Muren and Phil Tippett. Oh, of course. Um, Legends. So those, those were huge. The biggest names, I would say. Who would you, mo- I mean, I guess the answers may be obvious, but who would you most want if you could wave a magic wand? So, okay. Uh, this is good. No, I, f- I feel like I'm being interviewed, which is great. We can just go like that. Um, <laughs> the biggest one, number one, and I would shut down, the, there'd be no more podcast. If I got Marsha Lucas... I would shut it down. Oh, that would be huge. Yes. Because you know she's got all the receipts. But she has only really done one other interview. Yeah, um, I was going to say, like, everyone, like, people in the Star Wars universe know that she played this really important role behind the scenes, right? That she's, like, largely uncredited for. Like, everyone knows George, right? But no, so few people know, like, what a, what a role Marshall has. Has she ever talked about it much? She So I she talked about it in, like, the 80s one time. One time, because she was in the the book, the Skywalking book. She did that with George. And then three years ago, she did an event with the Academy in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was kind of about Rogue One, actually. But it was like galactic innovations from Star Wars to Rogue One. And it was inducting the Dykstra Flex into the Academy. I think, wasn't John Knoll a part of that? And panel? John Knoll was there. Yeah. And Ben Burt was there. And Marsha spoke. Mar- Marsha was on wow. the list. And so I flew out. I live in Texas. And I flew out just to... Right. And that was her only time to ever do something publicly. And then she wrote a little thing for Howard Kazanjian's book. He's the producer for Empire and Jedi mm-hmm. and Indy. Mm-hmm. And so she has whole snippets in there of like her experiences, which is interesting. But yeah, so all this we said, Marsha number one. And then John Knoll, I've been bugging uh, forever. One day I'll get John John's Noel. great. I used to, all the time I was working with him on Rogue, I would just, I would just constantly pester him for like anecdotes and like technical, like, how did you do this? And you know, just like constantly kind of fanboying around him. But he always had time and he would always, one of the things I remember about John was he would always, um, like he loves to talk about that stuff, right? Cause mm-hmm. it's his, it's his passion. And like, you'll always get more than you bargained for. I remember asking him, we were actually sitting together. We were on set for Rogue One. We were actually on the Scarif set which is that which is actually a place called Bovingdon in southern England where they kind of built this like whole fake stretch of beach and put up fake palm trees and, and stuff and the, you know movie sets there's a lot of sitting around wait, waiting right right do it like waiting for them to set up or the next shot or whatever there's a lot movie sets are really boring for the most part <laughs> uh-huh. and so there's a lot of just sitting around um and I was sitting with I was sitting at the monitors with John and I was talking to him and I said I've got I've got a question I've always wanted to ask you because I used to have all the old making of books, right? Return, right? Making Return of the Jedi and Indiana Jones and all this stuff. And I still remember them vividly. And like, for example, one of the things I remember is like, if you look at the old speeder bike shots, right? That they shot, you know, on a, on a, on a blue screen, right? It was a blue screen, right? That's what they had. Right. And these days, of course, we, 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 we always see green screen and we talk about right. green screen. And I said, at what point did it stop being a blue screen and start being a green screen? And why, and why was that? Mm-hmm. And I imagine there was an interesting answer, but John like went, he gave me like a 45 minute answer <laughs> that stretched all the way back to the birth of broadcast television. Uh-huh. And, and then he, he got into the science of the way that the rods and cones and your eyeballs work. And like, it just, it was like, I was like, by the end, I was like just glazing over, just nodding. And like, I understood maybe like one tenth of what he said. Right. 
And I guess the short version is ended up, green ended up just being a better background color for, mm -hmm. you know, for comping in images and you just get a better result. But like, but he, but he didn't give me that. So he gave me like the full two hour, like deep science lecture version of it because that's John. Right. And it was just, I was just so fascinated. Every time I had a chance to talk to him, it was amazing. That's uh, that's the dream, yeah. So one day, one day, ILMPR will will say yes. Uh, if you ever get him guys. on, ask him to tell you the story about Peter Cushing's head. Did I ever tell you that one? Is that where they had to find the mold for it? The sculpt, or, yeah. Mm -hmm. From uh, they, what's was, the movie? What's the movie? From Top Secret. From Top Secret, yes. It was really interesting because you know when they when they for people who may not know the story, this is one another one of my favorite John Knoll stories, and it kind of really speaks to like what a legend he is in the in the in the VFX industry is you know when they decided they were going to try to do Tarkin in CG they had to figure out like how to do it because obviously they didn't have access to the actor anymore you know Peter Cushing long dead by that point uh, but typically like had he been alive had he been available um, they would have sculpted his face right they would have taken like a 3D scan of his face right in the old days they would actually like slather his face with some kind of like plaster or Paris or whatever and make a mold right that's actually what they did do back in the day but now, nowadays, they would put you in some kind of ILM lab and scan you with like a million different, you know, optical cameras and get like a perfect 3D model of your face. And that wasn't available. And there's only so much you can do from the archival footage that they have. And so John, who knows everything about the history of effects and knows everyone in the business, um, found this sculpt that they, that they did make of Peter Cushing's head back in the 80s. And it was from Top Secret. Mm -hmm. If you remember the Val Kilmer movie, there's like Peter Cushing's in it for like one scene. And there's right. one gag in it that's hilarious where, right, with the magnifying glass, when you first see him, he's looking through this magnifying glass and he's got this like hugely magnified eye through the glass. But the joke is when he takes the magnifying glass away, he just has a massive eye and it's not magnified. It's just this ridiculous light. And the way that they did that gag was they put a prosthetic eye on his head and they had to sculpt his head in order to fit the prosthetic. And John tracks down that sculpt, that sculpt that was still sitting in a, you know, some, you know, uh, effects workshop somewhere on a shelf. He found it, tracked it down. They gave it to him, you know, because John Knowles asking, like, you're going to go find it. Um, and that was actually what they that was actually what they scanned to build, you know, one of the many techniques that they used to kind of digitally reconstruct Tarkin. I just every every story <laughs> about John is just fascinating. <laughs> I love it. Well, let me. I, I should name other people, and then uh, no, I, the the only other people that quote unquote I have not worked or talked to yet that is still like on the list are Ben Burton, Doug Chang are kind of like the, the last. Doug, oh, and Doug is like I never met Ben Burton, but Doug Doug Chang is like the nicest guy you'll yeah. ever meet. He was so friendly to me, such a nice guy. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you never know because I've been listening to some of these other in like fan movie fan podcasts and mm -hmm. and you know kind of pop culture podcasts on the Stephen King podcast. They hit they Stephen King him. showed up yeah. not long ago. And on Light the Fuse, the Mission they Impossible, Tom. they just had Macquarie and Tom Cruise show up for their 200th episode, right? So you never know, right? The glass ceiling has been shattered for like big stars showing up on these fan casts, right? which I love. I love that, that they get involved now at this level. Yes. Yeah. No. And again, we've, again, talking, I've, you had said I would have talked to Murin and Tippett and Edlund and Bruce Nicholson and Ken Ralston and all these guys, you know, before the podcast started, I'd have been like, that's crazy. But um but you know we're uh, we're getting there. So yeah, one of these days, John Noel will come on, and uh, the restraining order will be lifted, and it will be a, a, a glorious day, a glorious day for us all. Oh my god. Okay. Well, that's enough about me. I mean, we can still talk about me. But um, it's been a little bit since we last talked. You've been incredibly busy. You just like will not stop. I think last time we talked was during the pandemic, and it was the height of. Animal talking and you like blowing up the internet that way. Oh, that's right. Animal talking. Yeah, that Real was like big. 2020. I know, right? So, the, uh, yeah, what what was happening then? Uh, but fill fill people in a little bit on the past couple years of like, again, you just every time you you announce a project or you do something, I'm always just so impressed with where you take it and like how you kind of think outside the box to make it make it a little bit more unique than so the last star wars related thing just to kind of keep it on topic that i did and maybe maybe this is what i was talking about on the last show i don't remember because it would have been 2020 was you know they're putting out these these um certain point of view books right, right? where they they did it in um 2017 which was the 40th anniversary of star wars they put out a book called Star Wars from a certain point of view, which was a really cool idea, right? It was like 40 different stories from 40 different authors. And each one was from, 
you know, the point of view of like a side character in the movie. Right. So like the Moss Eisley cantina, you know, bartender and, you know, right. the, 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 uh, the trash compactor monster, just like some of these really weird ones. And I did um, Captain Antilles because it was like kind of a crossover with Rogue One. Right. Um, and then they came back to me in 2020 for the 40th anniversary of Empire. And I wrote something called Rogue Two. Mm-hmm. for uh for that but it was the it was the zev Seneska rogue too right from right. um from empire there's the, the, the speeder pilot who finds han and, and and luke when they get lost in the snow and that may have been what i was because 2020 that was that was what yes, i was we, yeah, that was we, like we, the star wars thing i was doing i'm i i don't know yet but i'm I, presumably they're going to do from a certain point of view jedi. Jedi next year for 2023 that'll be the 40th anniversary of jedi which secretly is my favorite movie of the three. I have to be careful who I say that in front of because people get annoyed and say, oh, what about Empire? What about the original? Like, it's, it, it's weird how Jedi is considered the worst. I think the mo- most Star Wars people tell you they think Jedi is the worst of the three. But I don't agree, I don't agree with that at all. I have such fond memories of the Jedi. I, I, it's also age-based, I'm sure, too, right? Like you were able to like really be like a Star Wars fan. Jedi is out. And also, Jedi is great. I, I'm, you know, again, it's it's hard because people have such lofty things of of Star Wars and Empire, right? Where like that, those are the best movies ever made, blah blah blah. But Jedi is so much fun and so great, and is the one I turn on to watch. I feel like I I, I think you make a good point about the age as well. I was just on another podcast last week, this thing called Overhated, where they talk about films that get too much hate and are not <laughs> as bad as people say. Um, and I was talking about a movie you've probably probably never seen or even heard of called Hot the Slayer, but it's okay. a kind of Brit- bad British fantasy film from. 1980 that I absolutely fell in love with when I was a kid when I first saw it. It's very bad. Um, but the point is when I was like, when I was eight years old, the movie imprinted on me. It was like, this is badass. And like, so right. even now, like today, even though I can kind of, I'm able to kind of like appraise it for what it is. Oh yeah, this is a bad movie. It's, right. But there's still like the eight year old in me who's having the, oh yeah, but this is still badass though. Cause I loved right. it when I was a kid. Yeah. And that's, I think a, a big part of the reason why I have such fondness for Return of the Jedi. Cause it was actually the first movie that I saw on the big screen. Oh wow. Right. I didn't see Star Wars and Empire. I both saw uh, either on television or home video. Cause I was only, I was only five when Star Wars came out. Right. And I was eight when Empire came out. Uh, but I was 11 when Jedi came out. And that was, I remember my dad took me to the, a big theater in, uh, uh, in Leicester Square to go see, see the movie. And seeing it on the big screen for the first time, and I, again, people can say it's not the best one. The, the Ewoks get a lot of hate. But there's so much good shit in that movie. All of the Jabba's Palace stuff is, is great, Incredible. right? Incredible. The, ba- the, 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 the sail barge fight is so fucking cool. Yeah. And then the entire third act, I think, is some of the best stuff in all of Star Wars. The way that those three battles kind of play out, you know, it, it, there's there's three things going on at, one, on at once, right? The battle for the shield bunker on the surface, the battle, you know, in in orbit around the Death Star, and then the personal battle that's happening in the Emperor's throne room, right? And they're all connected. What happens in one affects the others, right? The shield's down so they can go in. The, the, the Death Star's now collapsing, so Luke's got to get out of there. Like All this stuff's happening at the same time. And the battle, of course, is the, the trap that the rebels get led into is, is the whole point is, the Empire's trying to make Luke furious, right? So he'll right. turn. So all of these things are kind of interconnected. And the way that it just ed- it editorially kind of cuts back and forth between, like, right, right as you've had enough of, like, one piece of action, just, oh, but what, don't forget, this is going on as well. Right. And it's all connected. And I still believe that it's the best space battle ever connected, ever committed to film, the Battle of Endor. The way those ships move, they're so fast, the sense of speed, it's so kinetic. The, the moment that they kind of barrel roll inside the Death Star, I still remember as a kid, like I was fucking losing my shit out. <laughs> and it really was a massive influence on Rogue One. Like the whole yeah. Battle of Scarif is heavily, heavily based on the Battle of Endor. And I, that was really wanted to do that whole idea. Again, your Scarif's the same, right? There's a battle on the surface and there's a battle in orbit and, what, and, and, they're, and they're interconnected, right? right. And so uh, the, the, whole, the whole end of Rogue One, is, for me at least, when I was initially writing it, was, was intended as a tribute to Jedi. Um, and so I know, I know that we've gotten, you were asking me what I'm up to. I just ended no, up kind of rattling. I, I love it. Well, Jedi, and also but... you're, you're tying it into, uh, to Marsha talk because Marsha is the one that did all the third act editing. Uh, is that right? Lucas called it the dying and crying scenes as uh, what Marsha Luke, Lucas edited for Jedi. Sean Barton is the editor of Jedi, but then she came in to do especially all that intercutting and especially, so well the, done. especially the duel. And I, th- and I think the fact that it's the finale of everything, right? There is a finality to it. Yeah. That, you know, have, have they never made another movie? Return of the Jedi is, 
it's the end, right? It's a it's a yeah. fitting end, right? They finally defeat the Empire. You know, Anakin returns. The the Jedi has returned. You know, Darth Vader's redeemed. Um, you know, everyone's partying. You know, they're playing the they're playing the uh, the the stormtrooper helmets like like little bongos. Like every you know, Yub Nub. Like everyone. That's why I can't watch the special editions because I really really hate that they got rid of Yub Nub. You're not yeah, a big. Uh, that, what is it called? It's not the Jedi song Rocks. that. I, I, it's oh, it's just celebration song. Whatever, whatever they replaced it with, I don't care. Yeah, again, it's Yub Nub is what I heard, is what imprinted on me when I was a kid, so it'll just always be <laughs> Yub Nub. Yub Nub, uh, and I and I love. I just they, they, there is like there is a sense of like, you know, the, the, it feels like an, like an, like the fitting end to like a really epic story that you've been following you know, for the last you know six years that these films right. have been coming out and again if they even if they'd never made another movie i think you know like you could they could have just parked it there and said yep that's that's the end um and i just i just remember as a kid just feeling really overwhelmed by the by the emotion of the finality of it all right it really is an epic ending it's it's everything you want it to be and i was just for that reason i don't know i really think it is just the ewoks people just had such a visceral reaction to them yeah, if they had it been like wookies i think as, as i remember like was the original plan at one point i don't think it would get the same hate that it does now no i also also it's it's very interesting because star wars hate which you might be semi aware of being in the space is like cyclical right where i think when you were growing up i'm sure people were like the Ewoks fucking suck. I hate the Ewoks. They ruined Star mm -hmm. Wars, right? And then the prequels come out, and everyone that grew up with the original trilogy was like, wait a second, the prequels suck. I hate the prequels. I hate Jar Jar. I hate whatever. And then now the sequel trilogy has come out, and they're like, wait a second, no, I hate the sequel trilogy. The prequels are great, right? And I've heard, I've heard some crazy takes, people saying that the original trilogy is boring and bad, and I'm like, <laughs> it really has come full circle. Again, it's a generational thing. It's what yeah. you grew up with. There's a whole generation of kids that grown up with the prequel movies and those are the ones imprinted on them right and for, for them those that star wars just like there's a new generation of kids growing up now for whom you know kylo and ray and finn yeah. that's what imprinted on them um and so each generation has its own you know affection for it and it's interesting how the movies do get reappraised over time. i don't know if you ever went back and like looked at some of the reviews that came out for empire like when mm -hmm. it first came out there was a lot there was a lot of hate for that people movie. really didn't like it <laughs> It was like, cause, cause it's, cause I actually, I wish that I, that I could, that I had been a little bit older and could have like really appreciated it more because one of the things that's easy to like gloss over or not think about that much is like, what a massive, it's so risky what they did. Cause it was a, such a massive tonal shift mm -hmm. from the, I don't know if there's ever been a sequel that is tonally so different from the original film than empire is to star. Like star Wars is, is just like a rescue the princess fantasy right. adventure romp, right? It's funny. It's fun. It never gets really super dark. It has a very kind of light tone to it, right? It's it's mm -hmm. a romp. It's it's a it's an adventure, and it's camp, and it's just fun. And Empire is so much darker, and so much more mature, and just so it just feels like a much more grown up, serious film. And it obviously ends in such a dark way that kind of yeah. leaves you like, what? Seriously? That's the what? What? Are you kidding me? Like and it, you know, obviously has the big, you know, the big revelation at the end. It's such, right. it's such an utterly different film that I kind of understand why people at the time almost couldn't mm -hmm. rock with it because it's like, what the, what is this? It's this isn't, this isn't Star yeah. Wars. And yet, and, and again, and of course, the funny thing is now, forty years later, <laughs> nine out of ten Star Wars fans will tell you it's the best Star Wars film. Right. It is. It is interesting because it's a very similar. Because I think Temple of Doom had that same problem. Right, where Temple, mm -hmm. they were like, big oh, tonal. It's, that, it's, that's a, that's another good point. That was but, a big but, tonal. But it was well. less well received. Obviously, I love Temple of Doom. I think it's great. But it, I mean, no one is saying Temple of Doom is better than Raiders, right? I don't really think that's a conversation people have. I don't know. That's a, that's another one. But even even though it's aged very poorly, and there's 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 problematic stuff with with Temple of Doom now in terms of like the ethnic representations and stuff. I still think it's a tremendously fun film. And I would say in this, I, I feel the same way about the opening twenty minutes of Temple of Doom as I do about the last thirty minutes of oh, Star Wars. The best the best opening scene of all time I think, incredible in, in cinema everything really... from the opening shot to when they finally rock up on that beach in india yeah. is just incredible it's, like it's, it never stops it is it is spielberg maybe at his best like truly like him doing a bunch of different things i still remember i'm certainly geeking out now i still remember <laughs> the first time i saw it when he goes nice trial out yet and he shuts the door <laughs> goodbye yeah. dr jones it's like you just gotta let every every second the movie is like throwing you another curveball Right. And it's so cool and it's so well done. And again, there's there's reasons why the movie has not aged well. It's interesting. I have this theory about trilogies 
in the a lot of really a, a lot of really big trilogies tend to follow a certain not a formula but like a trend that you see in a lot of films like for example like indiana jones and star wars both do this mm -hmm. star wars sets a certain tone right the original film and then empire strikes back is very very different tonally and a very different kind of film right and then return of the jedi kind of like brings it back closer mm -hmm. to the original tone more fun and a lot of a lot of a lot of elements from the original film come back like back to tattooing right back to luke's home and then of course what is it all about the third act a massive attack on the death star right they've all they've built another death star right and it's it feels it feels very um reflective of the first film right it's almost like the first film over again but on a on a grander scale indiana jones does this as well raiders lost ark certain kind of film lots of fun fighting the nazis going after an ancient relic second film vastly different in tone way darker almost like a horror film mm -hmm. right no nazis totally different enemies different different stakes very and, a, and just a very different vibe all along and then last crusade comes back around to similar, more similar to the first one. Nazis are back, looking for a check, you know, check, going around the world, looking for an ancient relic, right. solving clues, getting locked in dungeons and that kind of stuff. And it just, it's, and, and then Ocean's Eleven does it, Ocean's Eleven, you know, Vegas, Ocean's 12 goes and does something really weird and different. And then Ocean's 13 is basically back in Vegas, take out the casino guy. I get, I could give many, many examples of it, but there's this weird thing where they're like, they, they set in a lot of trilogies, they'll set a certain tone, They'll try something weird and experimental for the second film and then kind of retreat to like the, the more comfortable, familiar themes of the first film right. for a third one. You see it a lot in trilogies for some reason. Right. And for better or for worse. Right. I mean, it, it just really it's very interesting, the cyclical nature, because like you, you know, people respond. I mean, not to name episodes seven, eight, and nine, right? But I mean, that was exactly what happened. I mean, yeah, right? I mean, for different reasons, but you could say again, right there, right? First film sets a certain tone. Very, very much a tribute to the original film. Um, very, very similar to the original film in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. um, then the second one, of course, Brian did something very radical and different. Right. Um, and obviously wasn't didn't please everybody, but he did, he did something different and like was very determined that he wanted to kind of break the pattern, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, JJ comes back on the third one and tries to bring it back to where he was in the first place. So that's a—I I feel like that happened for different reasons. But it, you, yeah, you could totally you give have it as similar. another example of that. Right. Of that kind of like first film is like pattern A, second film is this very different kind of pattern X, and then back to pattern A for the for the third film. It's interesting. Right. I don't even know what we were talking about now. You were asking me what I was up to. Well, that's—I think we've we've gotten to it. You were really doing some deep dives and trilogies, and then that brings up to twenty twenty two. You've done nothing else. I feel like that's it. You've just yeah, that's watching. that's pretty much. I've just I've just been talking about reminiscing <laughs> about Star Wars and Indiana Jones for the last two years. Hey, nothing wrong with that because I feel like that's what I've been doing. What else is has been going on? I've just been kind of you know, I'm still writing. I'm still working. I've got some TV stuff in development. It's in, it's so difficult to get stuff through the system these days. I'm sure you know if you people in the business that you talk to, or if you're just kind of like reading stuff from outside i mean like you also what happened everyone just saw what happened recently with batgirl like it's hard out there right. right now right it's it's hard to get things made it's hard to get them through the system in a way that is creatively satisfying for you as a writer because in hollywood you're very low on the totem pole right. and you and you recognize that for 90 percent of the stuff that gets made in hollywood these days which tends to be franchise stuff whether it's dc marvel harry potter star wars Hot Wheels, the movie, whatever it is, whatever is like the big thing that's getting or, or a big, you know, book adaptation, Hunger Games prequel, whatever. It's all, you know, based on this big franchise stuff. When you're a writer working on that stuff, you're very aware of the fact that this is not yours, right? right. You, you're, you're, being, you're being well paid to play in someone else's sandbox. Someone else is paying the money to make this movie and it's your job to make them happy, right? This is not your personal... Uh, toy box to play with like you you've got it you you can have fun working on these things but you're always aware that you don't really have like creative autonomy like you don't get to put your foot down and say well it's going to be this way as as a, as a as the creator of something or a creative person on on a job you might you might want to do that the only way to do that is to really create your own stuff which is kind of close to what i've been trying to do so i've been working on stuff like i said continue to work on like i paying the bills by working on those kinds of movies mm -hmm. I did a couple of movies for Disney and, you know, again, working on you know, adapting other people's stuff and 
but increasingly the stuff that I get the most satisfaction from is the stuff that I create like myself, like a whole cloth, the original stuff. The, the problem is that is the stuff that is the hardest to get through the Hollywood system, right? Because unless you, again, 90% of the business these days is Star Wars, is Marvel, is right. Harry Potter, is again, you name you know, the, the big DC, right? It's all that stuff. And that's sucking up like so much of the oxygen and so much of the development money because studios just want stuff that, you know, studios are very risk averse. They're major corporations. They want to make money. They want to please their shareholders. And the way to do that is to minimize risk, your exposure to risk and just do things that, you know, have a proven track record of working like big comic book adaptations, another Star Wars film, right? Another Harry Potter, whatever it may be. And unless you are Christopher Nolan or JJ or someone at that level, or Spielberg, a handful of people that have made it to that, like, you know, S tier echelon of filmmakers, it's very, very difficult to make original films. Like only Christopher Nolan could have made Inception, for example, right? Like, or maybe Spielberg. But the point is, there's only a handful of people that can get an original idea manifested at that level, right? right. And he, and again, I think even then it was because like he was like, let me make this if you want me to make the next Batman. Basically, it was kind of the deal with Warner Brothers, as I understand right. it. So very, very hard to get these things done. And unfortunately, because I grew up on Star Wars and Star Trek and like Battlestar Galactica, that's the kind of stuff that I like to write. It's very, I've done it, but I typically don't write small. Right. Like all of my all of my ideas are like big, expensive ideas, which you know, again, I go to a studio and I say, here's my yeah, I'm Gary Witter, who's like you know, way down the pecking order. Like, there's JJ, and I'm like keep way, 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 way down below, you know? Um, and here's my, you know, original sci-fi idea that I want you to spend a hundred million dollars on it. It's based on nothing. And they're like, no, we're not going to, why would we do that when we <laughs> right. could just make another Marvel film or whatever? Sure. And so it's very, very difficult. And so what I've increasingly tried to do is find ways to get my stories in front of an audience in ways that are more likely to ultimately see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, where I have greater kind of control over the process. Because again, it's, I always tell people about who want to be screenwriters. I, 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 when I speak at you know, conferences and screenwriting events and things like that, or mm-hmm. Comic-Con or whatever, and I talk to people, I always say like, really ask yourself if, if, if it, is it writing that you love or is it film that you love? Like if mm-hmm. it's film that you love and screenwriting is the only avenue you can imagine, by all means, pursue that. And I wish you the best of luck. But if you just want to write stories and tell stories, consider almost any other medium except film. Because film is the, is the medium that will put up the greatest fight. It's the most mm-hmm. expensive way to make a story, right? For the most part. Like even a, even a, even a cheap indie film is more expensive than writing a book, right? right? Um, and, it's, and it's also the one that will put up the most of a fight creatively. It's the only business where writers are disposable and replaceable commodities. The example I always give is, let's say Stephen King turns in a a draft of his new novel to his publisher Mm -hmm. and the publisher gets back to him and says, Stephen, we love the new book. We're really excited about it. We don't love the third act though. So we're going to get rid of you and we're going to bring in another writer to rewrite your third act. And you're you're, you're smiling right now because that's such a a, a nonsensical, absurd idea, right? Right. That Stephen King would get fired off of his own book and rewritten by another writer. But in Hollywood, that happens all the time. Right. That's par for the course. And it's, in fact, the only business where it happens. Um, if you're a playwright, you have much more creative autonomy over what you write. If you, even in television, writers have a lot more autonomy as the author of a book. I remember when I wrote my first novel, the, the, uh, the editor that I worked with said, here are my notes. And, uh, and most of the notes were very good, but there were some I didn't agree with. And I said, what do I do, with the, what do, I do about the notes that I don't agree with? And they were like, just don't do it. It's your book. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? You're not going to fire me if I don't do the notes? Because again, that's, <laughs> right. you know, in, in, in Hollywood, that when you're given notes on a screenplay, the, the, un, the unwritten note at the bottom of it is like, if you can't do these notes in a, to our satisfaction, we'll find someone who will. And that happens all the time, right? I, I have been fired and replaced on almost every movie I've worked on, just as almost every screenwriter has, because it's, it's just so, you know, interchangeable. Uh, and we're very disposable and we are commodities. It's, it's often the reason why uh, in Hollywood, they, they're very rarely, you, they'll say, oh yeah, the writer's coming in to discuss. They won't say Gary's coming in, they'll say the writer's coming in. Mm. Because it might not be Gary tomorrow, but it will still be the writer. 
Right. It'll be whoever they need. So it's like almost like you know when you're a farmer, you don't Jeez, name your yeah. pigs because it makes it harder to slaughter them. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. Because you want to get attached to them. So it's just like the rider. <laughs> right. It's like that's the one, you know, it's always the rider, whoever it might be this week. And it happens all the time. Right. Anyway, I found that the, the last draw for me was I worked on a on a movie a, a couple of years ago where we were six weeks from production, $40 million spent in pre-production, sets built, costumes built, VFX, you know, pre-vis was all done. And um, and it got canceled. And I was like, oh, my God, all that work for nothing. And again, imagine what the people who worked on Batgirl must feel like. Right. Where they were at the other end of the process. The film was almost done. done. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you have to understand what it's like working on a film. You work on it. They take years to make. Right. From the initial meeting on Batgirl through all the script development, creative development, casting, pre-production, location scouting, and then you shoot the movie. You're getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning every day to make a 6 a.m. call time. You're shooting all day, all night. You're exhausted. You know, you, when you go to sleep, you dream about the film that you're making. Like, you you, you kill yourself making these films. And then you go into post-production. And, and that all ends up being for nothing. Right. For something that was nothing, that wasn't nothing to do with you. It's just because, oh, well, it's better, it's better as a tax write-off. Because some business executive decided that the studio will make more money that way. It's heartbreaking. Right. The only way to do this work is to give a shit, right? Creatively, you care about the things that you do. Like you can't not do the job if you don't care about stuff. So every time a project gets taken away from you or killed or something like that happens, you genuinely go through some of the same emotions that you do when you go through like an actual heartbreak, like a breakup. Right. There's, like a, there's like a grieving process that happens. You don't just walk away. Mm -hmm. And that's happened to me a number of times. Any screenwriter will tell you this. And after a while, I just kind of got sick of it. I was like, you know what? I'll continue to do the work to pay the bills. Because the one, the, the one nice thing about screenwriting is it is well paid. Mm -hmm. But it comes with all, this other, all these other caveats. And so what I started to do was for my own material, rather than try to push that through the Hollywood system, which is this Sisyphean struggle, and there's no guarantee that anyone's ever going to make the film. There's no guarantee that, I'm, that it's going to resemble... You know the film that I wanted to make when it when I first started this out. I remember when I when I did the book of Eli, they actually did make the film that I wrote, and I remember seeing the first edit and going, "Oh my god, this is they actually made the film that I wrote." But then I remember thinking, "That's the one you get. Mm -hmm. You've played your Joker earlier in, in your career. Like this will never happen again." And twelve years later, it never has. Mm -hmm. I've had I've had other movies made since then, but none of them are just like the screenplay that I wrote. They all went through for better or worse. For, for worse in the case of After Earth, for better in the case of Rogue One. Like Rogue One actually got better than mm. the script that I wrote because other talented people worked on it. After Earth just kind of went like sideways because I think they, they couldn't agree on what movie they were making. Right. But in both cases, the, when the movie comes out, you have mixed emotions because it's like, this isn't, I recognize a lot of me in this movie, but there's also a lot that I don't recognize. Right. And Eli is really the only thing I've ever written as a movie where I'm like, that's, that's, that's what I wanted, you know? And so I wanted to get, I wanted the easier way to get to that feeling like, yes, here's a story that I created that has now surfaced and is available to consume in some way, whether you read it, whether you listen to it, whether you watch it, whether you play it as a video game, whatever it might be. I, I it got, it, it found an audience and it's, and it's a story that I wanted to tell to that audience. That's the creative end game for me. And again, it's very, very hard to do in film these days. And so I started to find other ways to do it. The very first screenplay that I ever wrote um, couldn't get it made as a movie. So I wrote it as a, I took the screenplay and adapted it as a comic book. And we published it through Image Comics and that was successful and people enjoyed it. Oh, great, we, so we did it. Um, there was another feature film that I wanted to write as a, as a spec script, but I thought, no, it's like, it's set in like 10th century England. It's like all these reasons why a studio is not gonna make it because it's not commercial. So I wrote it as a novel instead. And the novel got published and that mm -hmm. found an audience. So that was satisfying to me. The interesting thing about all this from a commercial standpoint is that once you actually get a story to market that way, now it's no longer an original, right? Now it's a piece of underline. Right. Now it's a piece of IP. Right. And now a movie that they made would actually be adapted from the book or the comic book. So from, from a completely commercialized, like mercenary way of, 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 of advancing your, your writing, your career, I actually think it's a better way to do it. I, I, this was something that I learned a lot from Mark Miller, the comic book writer. Right. So I, was, I, was adap I adapted uh, one of his books, a book called Starlight for 20th Century Fox a few years ago. And I got to spend a lot of time with Mark. Mm -hmm. And Mark's a genius because what he does is he writes his comic books on his own terms, right? Whether it's Kick-Ass or, you know, Kingsman, Secret Service or whatever he does. Right. He writes the comic. No one messes with him. The comic comes out. People read it. That's his story. He gets 
to stand behind it. And then someone else comes along and makes it into a movie. And so, but one, one, so he gets to, he gets the movie made, but he also and the movie may may or may not be an accurate representation of the book. But there's but the books there as well. So he kind of wins, you know, both ways. Even if they don't make a movie again, the book is still there. And so I, I started thinking that's the way to do it. And I've had some success with that. You know, a bunch of these projects. So Oliver, the the um, the right. comic book and Abomination, the novel. If I'd have written those as screenplays, I guarantee you, no one's ever heard of them because they're not commercial enough to be made as big budget movies. The example I always give is The Hunger Games. Hmm. If Suzanne Collins, is that the name of the author, I think? Yeah. If, if, if Suzanne Collins, who wrote The Hunger Games, if she had written that as a spec screenplay, I guarantee you you've never heard of The Hunger Games today because right. no one makes that movie. But because right. she wrote it as a book and it went on to be wildly successful, Hollywood was queuing up to make that movie because now it's not a risky proposition because, well, we know... 50 million people bought the book right. a good chunk of them are going to go are going to go see the movie spreadsheet says you make money so right. they'll go make the movie right spreadsheet on the spec scripts says no you're not going to make money but the spreadsheet on the adaptation of the mega selling book that it's so this is this is now it has been for a long time the way the business works so that's increasingly what i've been trying to find ways to do is is find less steep paths up the mountain, if that makes sense, right? To try and get the story, you know, in, in front of an audience. So for this new thing that I'm doing, this thing called Gundog, this was another one, which originally was like all the way back in 2004 was originally, uh, I, the idea was to do a big feature film about, I love mechs, right. right? I love just like big, giant, you know, colossus war machines. And it's always been interesting to me that like, though they're massively popular in Japan, there's never been like a great kind of Western interpretation there's like pacific rim and other things out there with like big giant robots but like i just kind of feel like we've never had that here you know like you know in the in japan you've got gundam and you know robotech and battle you know BattleTech, and we've got like mech warrior and stuff like that over here but there's nothing like at the big hollywood level and i always wanted to do something like that back in 2004 i was naive enough to think that i could write a movie like that and get it made through the system these days i i don't have any of those illusions mm -hmm. And so when I finally decided to sit down and write it, I didn't write it as a screenplay, which I guarantee you I would spend six months putting my life into. And then it would go out to all the different studio buyers who would all say spreadsheet says no, right? And it would, and it would be read by maybe 20, 30 people ever mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. sit on a shelf gathering dust and we move on to the next thing. What a waste of time. That's not satisfying for me. So I wrote it instead as a novel and enjoy, I, I enjoyed writing the first novel, so I decided to try again and enjoyed writing this one and was trying to find another way to bring that to market in a way that would be more interesting than just like, here's a new book that I'm publishing. And so my wife's really, really into audiobooks. I don't know if you know this, but audiobooks are a third of the publishing market. Like a third of people who uh -huh. read books, read them by listening to them. Mm -hmm. It's a huge segment now. My wife has this Audible subscription that she just consumes audiobooks all day long, right? And I thought, man, if I'm going to self-publish this book, which was my plan, I, I, there has to be an audio component. And so during this is back during the pandemic, because I work in Hollywood, I'm fortunate enough to know, you know, actors and musicians and other creatives. I reached out to some friends and said, would you be interested in helping me? Like, no, no one's got anything else going on right now. We're all stuck right. at home. Because remember how bad it was back in 2020. We couldn't even leave the house. Um, it was like, do you want to help me, like, put this project together? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. And so over the, over the last two years, over the course of the pandemic, we've been basically adapting the book into an audio format, basically making an audio book. And we recorded nine hours of audio. Shannon Woodward from HBO's Westworld and The Last of Us Part Two mm -hmm. is the performer. And uh, Austin Wintry, who is this BAFTA and Grammy you know, composer who's written all this amazing stuff, wrote a full orchestral soundtrack for it. And we just did it for fun. But now we have all this audio. And so what I've done with it, and I think this is kind of interesting, is we chopped it up into like nine hour long episodes, kind of serialized it. And it's going to be a podcast mm -hmm. at some point down the road. But um, for what, what we're doing right now, which I think is really interesting, is because you mentioned animal talking earlier, had a big success with uh, on Twitch. Right. We did this stupid Animal Crossing talk show that ended up blowing up and we ended up having like Brie Larson and Selena Gomez and Sting. Right come all the all these like a-list stars ended up on the show we kind of had a moment on twitch back in 2020 and i got a big audience from that right. and it was using twitch in a different way to do something you know kind of innovative and fun and people really responded to it and i thought is there a way that i could you i could like 
reconnect with that Twitch audience and do something, you know, here's something else that's different. And so what we're going to do is we've taken these kind of nine hour long episodes. And by the time people are, are listening to this podcast, this will already have started. Episode one would have been uh, last week and episode two is, is going out this week on my Twitch channel, which is just twitch.tv slash Gary Witter. Every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific, there's a new show. There's a new live episode. Love it. And so I show up to introduce each episode live, you know, kind of like Masterpiece Theater, but without the leather armchair and the smoking jacket, like dollar store Masterpiece Theater, I guess, and introduce the episode right. and the smoking jacket. But I'll introduce, hey, hello, I'm Gary, I'm the creator of Gundog, and here's episode one, and I'll do a little intro, and then we roll the audio. Right. And the idea is, it's like listening to a radio show, right? Or, you know, again, an audio book, audio drama. And the nice thing about Twitch is, of course, everyone's listening together, and they're all represented in the, in the live chat that's flowing alongside the actual thing right. and so if i kill off a character or there's like a big plot twist or whatever everyone kind of experiences that at the same time oh my god whatever they can all react we have little emotes for different reactions and things and people can kind of have this communal if every even though everyone's like in their own home they're all in this same virtual space listening to the story together right. and they can all experience it together and then the idea is at the end of each episode when the audio concludes i come back live on camera and as the author of the piece kind of participate in a live like q a book club discussion whatever you want to call it i'll answer questions right. and talk about the next episode and we can just we'll just discuss it and i think it's again i guess the analogy there is like when you would go to like a bookstore because like an author's doing a reading from a new book he'll do a reading but then he'll like you know do a q a and the people in the folding chairs get to answer questions and stuff and this is just that but kind of writ large on a, on a larger scale, kind of using the internet to bring the audience together. Right. And we're going to do that every week for the next eight or nine weeks. Uh -huh. um, and, the, and we're also going to put the episodes on YouTube. And then the idea is I think at the end of the live serial, the, the live serialized run that will be sometime in October, uh, there'll be a podcast version that will also, you know, for people that either weren't able to or didn't want to tune in, at an appointed time or go find the Twitch VOD or whatever. There'll just be a podcast feed that you can listen to the way you would listen to any other podcast or audio book. And then at the same time, I'll also publish the actual book that this was all based on. You'll be able to get like an ebook or a, a paperback from Amazon or iBooks or whatever. And so we'll, um, the nice thing about this is that again, no one can pull the rug out from under me because right. this is not Star Wars that I don't own. This is Gundog that I do own and I'm not right. selling it to anyone no, I, I don't have to live in fear of that phone call. Oh, we're canceling Gundog. No, no one can cancel it but me. Right. Right. Because I don't have a big like marketing budget. I don't have a big studio behind me or anything like that. But I at least have the satisfaction of knowing that I own it. I control it. No one can fire me. No one can change it. For better or worse, this is all me. Like if you tell me there's something about Rogue One that you liked or disliked, I'll often say, oh, that's great. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you loved, like, for example, Chirrut but I had nothing to do with Chirrut. That was Chris White's created Chirrut, right? And so if it's something that I did have something to do with, I'll take credit for it. But if it wasn't me, they'll always make sure that people understood that that was a different writer because I know exactly right. kind of what the division of labor was on that movie and who did and didn't write what. Um, and I was very cautious about like not taking credit for something that I didn't, I, you know, I don't deserve. Right. Um, but with something like Gundog, like if you love it or hate it, I'll take all of the credit or all <laughs> of the blame because there's no yeah. one else, it's just me. Um, and so it's been, it's just been really interesting and really fun and really liberating to have like complete commercial and creative ownership of a project from beginning to end. The downside is there's no Lucasfilm Disney marketing machine behind, right? It's just me. So here I am on podcasts and doing interviews and like using social media to just drum up, you know, any awareness for it that I can. Um, but it's been really, really gratifying. It's really, it's a really fun piece. And Again, if you're interested in listening to it, you can go to twitch.tv slash Gary Witter and find any of the previous episode at this point will already be archived as a, as a VOD. Or you can go to my YouTube channel, which is also just youtube.com slash Gary Witter. And we're going to put the episodes there. Or you can wait until like October and we'll have podcasts up and the book will be available. So um, here endeth the kind of the promotional shameless part of this. You ask, this, this, this is kind of like my main thing. And I'm, you know, of course, very shameless about saying, from the writer of the book of Eli and co-writer of Rogue One and all the, all the things that people yeah. will know me from, but it's tough, man. And the whole point is like getting original material through the system in Hollywood, unless you're making like, like teeny tiny little indie films. And even those, even the, even small films are, are hard to make. But right. when you start talking about tens of millions of dollars and you're trying to do something commercial, 
there's no way to do that without exposing yourself to all kinds of potential heartbreak. Like I said, you get fired or the film gets rewritten or a director comes on who has a completely different vision. And by the time the movie comes out, you're like, what the hell is that? That's not what I intended <laughs> at all. Right. And I'm just trying to, to a certain extent, as long as I'm going to work in Hollywood, that's always going to be part of the, the risk that you take. But in the same way that I was talking about how studios try to expose themselves to as little, as little risk as possible commercially, I am now trying to expose myself to as little risk as possible creatively, which is to say, I want to try to do projects in a way that minimize the chance that I'm going to, have to get my heart broken over it. Does that make sense? No, 100%. And again, like I said a little bit earlier, I'm always just so impressed with you and both your creative output and like the stories you tell, but then also how you bring them to people. And so with Gundog and with anything else, I, I know it's going to be great. And I'm so happy you came on to talk about it a little bit more. And um, I'll put all those links in the show notes as well so people can just click. Yeah, please do. That'd be really helpful. Thank and, you. And listen, and, and we'll talk uh, very soon about something else, I'm sure. We'll just, or, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe whenever I get John Noll on, we'll do a post-episode, a post episode, like, discussion. I'm sure he'll. I'm sure he'll tell you a little story about how about how annoying I was, and I was always following following him around with my <laughs> my, my fanboy questions. No, see, uh, well, that's uh, it brings me it brings me a tiny bit of hope. But until then, the return. I'm trying to d- debate whether this episode will be called the Return of Gary Wada as the third installment or the Revenge of Gary Wada. We'll figure it'll it'll be a surprise. You should call it the Revenge of Gary Wada, but then change it to Return at the last minute after they <laughs> shipped a bunch of merchandise. <laughs> Stop the presses. Uh, right. Yeah, that's a good idea. After like six hours of it being up, I'll, I'll switch the name <laughs> uh, and have to and have to redo all the podcast assets and stuff. But Gary, uh, this, what a treat! What a what a what a delight getting to talk to you. Good luck tomorrow with the premiere, and uh, hopefully when people. I feel are bad that we didn't talk listen. more about Star Wars, but I no, guess we cares? kind of did at the, we at did. the top. We right? talked. We talked, we, a bunch about we talked so much about Star Wars. Uh, people will get over it. It's like you said, uh, no one can cancel this show. So uh, let me let me uh, let me ask because I enjoy asking you questions as a Star yeah. Wars fan. Let me turn the tables on you again. Uh-oh. What what is happening in the Star Wars space right now that you are most excited about? Like, what's your favorite thing that's happening like creatively in Star Wars right right now? Mm. I guess it's it's all it's all the TV stuff, right? Is where everyone's focused right now. Yeah, that's where the focus is. I will say the most excited I have been about Star Wars in a long time was visions i don't know if you got to watch visions star wars Visions. oh the, yeah the different uh animated things mm-hmm. yeah it, really incredible and really kind of like what i'm jonesing for with star wars um and i'm like more out of the more, box type stuff yeah and like just like again people's like different versions of it it doesn't have to be tied into canon and was just like crazy cool star wars things and really like i always think like is george lucas watching any of this and I hope that he watched at least that, you know, because I think he would actually get a kick out of, of people, you know, trying new things with, with that basis. And then the, there was a book that came with it that I really is probably the best Star Wars uh, book I've read in a long time about one of the chapters. And then uh, that's pretty much it for me. I'm, I'm kind of an old I'm kind of an old soul at this point. I'm like the Light and Magic documentary I really enjoyed. But yeah, that's that's kind of the big things for me right now and again it's been interesting i mean since the first time we talked and me i'm in no way an official person in star wars at all but me being at least writing for the magazine or writing for whatever and kind of like on the other side of things and having to like with these junkets and whatever like it is kind of a different vibe and you're obviously way more hyper aware of that than i am where you're once you're inside of it and you can kind of, Oh yeah. I mean, on. it's, it's actually, it's, it was my one fear when I, when I first went in to work on star Wars and I ended up obviously working for five years inside that world, not just on rogue, but on rebels and on the last Jedi comic and on the point of view books. Once you've been through, once you've been inside the machine, it does change you. Like you don't come out the same person, the same star Wars fan that you, that you were when you went in. Like it, it, I, and I still haven't, don't fully know how to like, describe that or or articulate it but i don't it's it's impossible i th- i think it didn't it's, it's it, I obviously i would i would never i wouldn't change anything like, I, w- I wouldn't go back and like uh, like undo this at all but like the only downsides it does it like anything like it does once you've seen behind the curtain and once you've been a part of making it it takes just a it takes just a tiny little bit of the magic out of it do you know what right. i mean oh, like sure. once the magician shows you his tricks right there's you can't you don't ever see it like quite the same way again. Right. And of course it was still like, that was a trade-off well worth doing because, right. you know, my name's in, as Chris White said, our names are in the blue letters. Right. And that's, that is something that will live 
right. forever. Like if there's any, I think there's one thing as a creative person, the one thing you want to do is kind of leave something behind, right? Mm -hmm. That will outlive you. And if anything that I've ever worked, like I talked about how I like to do my original stuff and maybe one day I'll write something of my own originally that's like super successful, but nothing that I'm pretty certain that not, I'll never have my name on anything that will be more remembered than Roe, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's actually really, really nice to know like every it, 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 every now and again my twitter blows up like three times a year right? yeah. one's trending again for like some reason someone will start a twitter thread about, about how it's the best star mm -hmm. wars movie or they'll post like the vader in the hallway scene or whatever and it starts sure. going crazy again and my twitter starts blowing up oh rogue one or rouge one as everyone on twitter seems to sure. want to call it um it's it's done well i think out of all of the disney era movies it seems it's to the be one that seems to be the one that has, has got like the most consensus behind it that that people like it or the ones i always see for rogue one are like is this the most underrated star wars I'm like no i think people people like it i think it's very right. uh, yeah i mean, it's, I mean it's, it's, it's it's got its haters just like any right. movie like any any star wars movie you can find its haters some of the films are more polarizing uh than others and i i, I see i see that all the time as well because people think it's interesting to tag me and like someone else go off like ragging on Rogue One, talking about how much they hate it. And someone will say, oh, I don't agree. Uh, at Gary Wood, a, a great movie. I'm like, why would you tag, why would you tag <laughs> why, me in on this? Why am I, I here? Don't need to yeah. see that shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it's 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 good. Every it, It's it's definitely, you know, that was always the fear when when Gareth and I were talking about, like, oh my God, like we can't fuck this up, right? Like it's right. got to be good. And I think, of, again, I don't, I never comment on the other films, um, but, you know, of of all the, I, I, I think you could say that, you uh, I don't think it's like a radical thing to say that the Disney era films have so far been kind of a mixed bag. And so I just feel very, very fortunate to have been associated with one that, you know, is considered, you know, at, at, the, at the upper end of that, of that for scale. Sure. Well, on that note, Gary, again, thank you for coming on. You are welcome anytime. And yeah. I probably will come back in October to promote whatever the, again, whatever the next thing is. Can't wait. Can't wait. I can't wait. I can't, I, I can't wait to, stuff to talk about, to listen to Gundog and then uh, read it eventually. And, uh, mm -hmm. And it'll it'll all be great. There's definitely I, some Star Wars influence in there as well, just like there is with every, with everything that I write. There's a there's a little there's a little Luke Skywalker in our in our hero. I love it. I love it. Well, cool, man. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for chatting. Thanks for asking me some questions. And uh, we'll talk. We'll talk real soon. Thanks so much. That was fun. Thank you so much again to Gary for coming on the show again and being such a joy to talk to. As mentioned, please check out his latest project, Gundog, which is streamed live on his Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash GaryWoodA. We have some very cool episodes coming up very soon, including my interview with ILM's Rachel Rose and a very special surprise next week. So if you're enjoying the show, please head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to these episodes and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really means the world. That's all for now. Until next week, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the force be with you.